Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everyone. I'm up for nomination for Best British Podcast, so if you could kindly take a minute and click the link in my bio... Type in James English and place your vote. It'd be very much appreciated. You can also follow me on my social media platforms to see who my latest guest is. You can follow me on Facebook at James English 11, Twitter at James English 0, Instagram at James English 2. And please make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel and also click the notifications button so you are notified for when my next video goes on my channel. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. And we're on. We're on. Yes, and today's guest, we've got Billy Moore. How are you, brother? Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, good man. Read the book, watched the film. Fascinating. Very interesting. You've had a, a bit of a mad life growing up in Liverpool. Um, spent a lot of time in prisons, I think over 22, 20 prisons. 22 prisons. Yeah, yeah. 22 prisons. and. Um, yeah, you've had a, a experience and a half, but it'd be good to go right back to the start and how it all began and how you got involved in the stuff you got involved in. Yeah, yeah it's a good start, to be honest. Uh, the beginning, is it's always... See, I never like, woke up one day and said I'm going to have a career in in, in, in crime and, and spending years and decades, in fact, in prisons. I wanted to be a boxer. Yeah, I wanted to impress my dad. I wanted to show him that, you know... I could be somebody and the reality of it was he was an alcoholic I lived in a violent household um, I was quite vulnerable quite scared I felt separate and different and alone even growing up and eventually you know anything I tried to do never um, I never got I never got the acceptance or the approval that I wanted of him um, so I found myself standing on the street corners and finding approval and acceptance of of kids my own age in um, in the streets of Liverpool. I mean, I found that really difficult. To, you know, I boxed for a long time up until well, see when I say a long time, I mean from the age of eleven. You know, started karate at first. It was like take uh, it was Shotek and karate. I tried that. It wasn't for me. I was never good at football because I'd never get picked. You know, I was one of them kids that I'd always get chosen last and I'd always be the goalie or, you know, we're going to have him. So I thought I'll do something that's for myself and, and I boxed for a little while, you know, and I won a few fights. Um, I started to build my own self-esteem up by doing that. Started to feel good about myself. Didn't need uh, my self-esteem from other people then. Um, and then girls, you know, meeting girls, spending time with their friends and, you know, trying out drugs but for me the minute I put a drug in my body I realised that it took away all that all those feelings of uh, loss and uh, abandonment and, yeah abandonment and rejection and, and, and fear you know I, I had that courage to to be someone's difference um, but I also had an allergy you know I wasn't the kind of person that broke out in lumps and bumps I broke out in handcuffs pain, misery and loss you know, and, and, I, and I spent years in um, in correctional facilities uh, in isolation most of the time. And I suppose I felt comfortable on my own, you know, getting labelled as well as like, uh, he's nuts or he's round a bend or he's, he's crazy or he's, he's, skits, he's a schizo and feeling comfortable with all those labels. Mm -hmm. But when I was on my own in a cell and the door was shut, I knew how lonely I felt. You know, I felt really, really lost really lonely um, and what age were you Billy when you first got to jail 16 yeah. what was the crime for I think it was a swock back then it was taken without only consent it was a car theft but it was a few the yellow added up and it was like at the beginning it was um, 
I think it's called UTMV today. Yeah. Oh no, sorry, it was UTMV back then, and yeah. that was called SWAT, you know what I mean? Which is unauthorised taking of motor vehicles, um, handling stolen goods, burglary, theft. Um, they were all the initial kind of arrest that he had in the beginning. The kind of usual suspects to, like I say, if you're in that, if you're kind of got those abandonment issues, you're kind of searching for something, you're craving that maybe attention, if you're doing bad stuff, we get that adrenaline rush yeah. where we feel good and then we're, we've got that buzz that we, we don't get, so we end up dabbling into drugs to get that dopamine kick where we're feeling good, we feel alive, yeah. and before you know it, you it just gets worse and worse and worse with the drugs. When did you start hitting the drugs kind of scene it? The heavier stuff? The heavier stuff, I mean, it started with cannabis initially, and that was the gateway drug, and then from then on it was... Um, LSD, without going into a drugology of things, yeah. it was like, it, it, it soon spiralled into uh, using heroin and crack cocaine. You know, within months of being in the grip of that drug, I was in prison. I was in a young offenders, and I remember the first time I went there, um, I was uh, in withdrawal stages. Uh, there was no help or rehabilitation or any kind of medication that he gave you back then. So you put you in a cell, and you're on a hardcore cold turkey, and it was... Um, and I always, pro I'll never, never do this again. I'll never do it again. And then, I'd say, within two weeks of being released, I was back at it. And I was on that cycle of um, repeating the same mistakes, but accepting, you know, expecting different results. Mm -hmm. When you went, did you get clean? Did you go to rehab, get clean, and then went to Thailand to change your life? Yeah, well, well it's, that was... Um, 2003 was like a significant moment in my life. I remember being on the yard in HMP Liverpool and I was looking around thinking, you know, I don't want to be here. You know, I couldn't face reality. Um, I needed help, but I didn't know how to ask for it. And it was the hottest day of the year and a few of the lads decided to stay out and climb on the roof. And I thought that was a great idea. <laughs> uh, three lads climbed on the roof and the first guy that got up there, the whole prison, screamed with yells of approval, all the windows were banging, everyone was going, go ahead, lad. And I looked up and thought, I want a bit of that. And I was the third guy up, and I climbed up, and halfway up, I slipped and fell down. And I remember this, this screw call, Mr. Muscle, saying, you'll never get up there, you fat ass. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that pride and that ego, and, you know. I'll show him. Yeah, I'll show him, and the failure. Uh, so I climbed up, and I was halfway up again, and I was struggling. You know, and the rest of the guys that were up there pulled me up and it turned into something like an off-sea rescue. You know what I mean? But the minute I got up, all the, um, all the lads were screaming, all the windows were banging, go on, Billy, he's right. And um, I was like, I felt importance at that time. For that moment, I felt really, like, accepted by the prison community. And then it stopped and it was about the guy that was getting up next. You know, my... 15 minutes of fame, so to speak, it ended. But when I, I always speak about this because it became a really significant uh, movement in, in, in my decision-making. I went to um, a prison after that, spent a long time in solitary confinement due to my behaviour. And I remember when the door got shut, I'd feel really hurt and lost and, that, and I'd have tears in my eyes. But when that door was open, I'd pretend. I'd put a mask on and, and I'd act as if Everything was uh, okay. And there was no one I could speak to. You know, everyone had shut the door on me. I'd be in tall bridges. And he had a couple of pounds on the credit, the phone credit, and I thought, I'll phone my mum. And I remember speaking to my mum on the phone and she's saying, um, I remember getting opened up, actually, and these two big screws took me to the phone and I'm acting hard, walking with a swagger. And um, the minute, the minute, um, my mum answered the phone and heard my voice. She was quite like, where are you and what's going on? And I knew, you know, that she cared and I had a lump, I had a lump in my throat and I felt really emotional and I couldn't, um, I couldn't answer her. And um, she knew, she just said, I know, you need help. And that was the first time that I put pen to paper and wrote a letter to um, a probation officer requesting help and it came in the form of a... Um, a rehabilitation in Bristol and that's where I went that's where I got my recovery how long were you in recovery for? initially it was three years 
How were you feeling then? Well, I was going through lots of loss, really. It was um, and lots of blame. You know, blame me dad for the for the way it, it turns out. Um, you know, there was lots of sadness, but I was also excited as well at the the opportunity of getting a new kind of way of life in it. A new it? life. Yeah. So is that when you decided to go to Thailand? Well, it was funny, really. Um, I got a passport, you know, the recovery accessories. I got a phone, a passport, a few friends that liked me, um, the odd girlfriend. And then someone offered me, you know, the opportunity to go to Thailand for three months on a backpacking holiday. I shaved up and went along to Thailand. And I'm like a world-class card-carrying pleasure seeker, you know what I mean? I enjoy, you know, mm -hmm. anything that's good, I'll, I'll tear the arse out of it. <laughs> so when I got there, you know, it was, uh, I had no kids, you know, I wasn't in a relationship, I had no ties, it was just me. I spent years, you know, in segregation units and prisons, and, and I thought, this is it, you know, I'm going to live here. So when my friend went back, I decided to stay, you know, and adopt a new culture and learn a new language, which was a bad idea because I was quite immature emotionally as well. So it just opened a, a, a gateway to yeah. get kind of sucked in and, and back to where you were in Liverpool. Yeah. When you got the jail in, was it Bangkok, Hilton, Bangkok? Clong Prem. It was Prem. Clong Prem, it was uh, Lad Yao Clong Prem. Um, I went to two prisons in Thailand. I went to the, the initial one was Chiang Mai. And then from Chiang Mai, after spending a year there, they took me down to Bangkok in uh -huh. Clong Prem prison. And that was three years? Three years. Because in there, the first night you were there, you were sleeping next to a dead body, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I got taken from the the courts and marched into this shell block that had, I think it was 79 prisoners. And there was nowhere to sleep. You know, there was a little piece, little space in the corner. It was next to a ladyboy and a guy who died the night before. Um, and I remember the, the, the Thai lady boy's name was Tiffany and she had this little top on that said no money no honey <laughs> big bold letters and I thought I'm grateful I've got no money because I'm more interested in the honey and I remember him saying to me I like your blue eye <laughs> I was thinking I hope you don't like the brown one you know I mean? <laughs> and that was I kind of got through them first few days with a bit of a you know maybe, you know uh, I don't know, just like that resilience, that, that, mm. that there's something within. I'm not going to kind of like end up dead in one of these places, you know what I mean? Because did you count as well 25 dead bodies get carried out the first yeah. week? the first week there was 25 bodies taken out the, out the prison in white sheets. You know, we were stepping over them, getting our medication in the hospital. It was quite... It's quite daunting, that. Yeah, uh, quite, quite uh, surreal uh, as well. And it became normal. And you know when you were talking about like being conditioned, I got conditioned to accept that as normality in the end. You know, I seen some guy stab himself in the neck, stab himself in the chest, he had HIV, blood was pouring out of every orifice, um, and everyone was like shocked and looking, and, and my first thought was, I can get some hot water while everyone's looking and distracted by him. Mm -hmm. it, it just became normal. This is like year after year of, of witnessing uh, these kind of horrific ways yeah. of living. Yeah, it's... Um because over there, there's a lot of drugs in these prisons. There's a lot of knives. There's like any guns in these prisons? No, there's no just way. knives. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of knives, uh, ice picks, machetes. I mean, these are uh, these are they're not like homemade shivs that you get in prisons in the UK. These were like 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 full blown machetes and hatchets and cogs off bikes. You know, like the 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 cogs that they use uh -huh. because they used them to chop up the ice and. And these are the uh, the instruments that they, they're being given. Because obviously that played a big part in your book, being in that prison, Prayer Before Dawn. Great book, great film as well. When you started, when did you start writing for that? I started writing it when I was in, in Thailand, just documenting little bits of what I'd seen and how I felt as well. That was important, you know, being really descriptive and, uh, and admitting that I did feel scared and, you know, writing that down. And it kind of helped me. And then when I got to Wandsworth Prison, I showed this education teacher an A4 piece of paper that I'd written. She took it away, came back and went, oh my God, that's amazing, you need to write more. 
At first, I thought she was stroking my ego, just trying to impress me. But she encouraged me to continue writing, so I did while I was there, because I couldn't really talk to people about what I'd experienced, because they couldn't identify it. They were like, you know, we haven't actually been through those experiences so we don't really understand so that helped it was more therapeutic initially it wasn't I didn't expect to write a book that was the truth and, um, it was more kind of to help myself because when I came back I was um, I had a culture shock I was speaking fluent Thai by this time I was quite passive um, due to uh, conditioned in, in prison in Bangkok and I felt really I felt alien in a sense, when I came back to the UK. Yeah, but it must have fucked with your head over there, especially with the shit you've seen. How was it? There was a lot of ladyboys. Yeah. How were they? They were vicious and violent, some of them. Um, but it kind of added to the intimacy of the prison. Yeah. And they used to always play bingo and, you know, bring a different kind of... Uh-huh. Experience as well to the, the yeah, whole, they, they were selling they, themselves. They, they was like, see outside in silence, these lazy boys are, are seen as like scum most of the time. But when they were in prison, they were like superstars. Um, they were never my cup of tea in a sense of like I want a relationship with one of them. Uh-huh. Although in the film it portrays like Joe as uh, meeting up with this young lady we call fame and, and developing a relationship and it became intimate and then it became sexual. Uh, that never happened. That's fiction, by the way. So he said. <laughs> <laughs> and you can Google that. Because <laughs> um, obviously if you're in prison, the, 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 most, the thing that's on your mind is the most is, is pussy. Is, and if there's people, listen, because I've, I've took girls home from a Saturday night drunk and I've been like, oh, <laughs> what the fuck have I done? So if you're yeah. over there, because some of the lady boys are stunning. Some of them are stunning. Were they a lot in the prison mental health and yeah. like most addicts, of, yeah. stuff most, like that? Most, I think most of the lady boys that were in there were all drug addicts. Yeah. They were in for drug dealing or mm. killing boyfriends that, 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 that they felt a bit of injustice around. The beautiful ones that were, they were all taken. Anyway, so it was, uh, and the ones that had the full operation were segregated right. from the rest of the prison population. So they, well, that's because there was a lot of rapes in these in those prisons, isn't there? Yeah. There's a lot of uh, rapes, and it didn't matter whether you were male or female. To be honest, it's just any old goals with them. You know what I mean? Was there a lot of gang rapes and stuff over there? There was, yeah. There was, yeah. There's a lot of a uh, like. I, I don't know how you say genital mutilation. You know what they do with the, the, the penises? They cut it in half and, and put little bits of uh, glass and stitch it up and squeeze it with Vaseline so it's all kind of extended and it looks massive. And, uh, uh, you know, then it, they cut the, uh, the foreskin into four, it looks like flowers. And, you know what I mean? When they stitch it all up, it's quite weird what they do to the penises. Like, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. Did you ever, when you started getting into the, the fighting side of it in the prison, because you were, you were back on the drugs in prison, were you not? Yes, I was, yeah. You'd have to, you needed drugs just to kind of get through the day. You Could you get it all right in the prison? Well, it was mostly like medication, some Azipan, Valium, uh, painkillers. Yeah. The odd. <laughs> Is he still running? <laughs> Red rum over there. <laughs> the, the fighting side of things, because you were addicted to drugs, but you were, you were fighting a lot in that prison, were you not? Ah, I was causing a lot of chaos. Um, you know, I couldn't understand what they were saying to me. The language barrier was really difficult. And, you know, I thought they were, like, like abusing me and, and insulting me. And they probably were at the time. And, it, you know, you could tell in the, in, in the way they were speaking, it was quite venomous. Um, I just react, you know, with the look. You, you know, I couldn't see what they were thinking, but I could see how they were behaving towards me. Um, so that caused a lot of problems, really. With myself, I ended up fighting a lot. Um, and it was only down to this one prison officer that said, you know, you need to kind of change your ways or you're going to end up dead. Because uh, with the boxing side of things, you were in a bad you were in a bad car crash or a motorbike, a motorcycle accident? Yeah, I had a motorcycle accident in Laos. Uh, that was, um, I, went in, I went from Thailand to Laos to get a visa. It was a visa run. And I was on the wrong side of the road. 
and it was late I'd been using drugs at the same time so I wasn't I wasn't cope as mentors and two taxis like tuk-tuks come race they were chasing each other and they come crashing right into me you know smashed the bike that I was on and half the bike the chassis went up smashed into my ribs I had the handlebar punching my lung and one of the brake levers going to my stomach and I got pushed to like I got rushed to a, 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 a like a third world hospital in a wheelbarrow with all kind of blood pouring out of me. It was quite horrible, really. Did you try and escape from the hospital? Did I, I read that that you trying to escape? No, this one initially. This was uh, this was when I got arrested because I had to go for surgery when I was in Bangkok. So the accident had happened before I was arrested. Three months later, I've been incarcerated. I'm in prison, I've still got these injuries, they need looking at, they've took me to hospital. Um, I'm on the seventh floor in this hospital in Chiang Mai and the prison guards are just nowhere to be seen. They just turn up every 15 hours, pop his head in and that was it. And I, and I realised the pattern that was going on here. And I had a little bit of money off one of the missionaries that come up so I could buy little bits of fruit, a little bit of food that came round and, and I made this I was dying for a cigarette, I was smoking at the time. I was just desperate for a ciggy. And I went down the back stairs to the exit, the door was open, and I couldn't believe it. I was outside and there was people on the grass having like picnics and I could see a 7-Eleven in the, in the background with a chemist next to it. And it seemed, it didn't seem that far away. I had shackles on my ankles at the time and I thought I'm gonna go over there just to buy cigarettes. I did, I made it, I made it over there. And instead of going to the shop to buy cigarettes, I went straight into the chemist and bought loads of tramadol painkillers first. Put them away. And then went to the shop and got cigarettes. Came back and no one had seen or heard nothing. That was the first time I'd walked out the hospital. And I went back upstairs to bed. And a couple of nights, every night I used to go down the steps and have a cigarette. And no one would be, no one would be in sight, no one would be there at all. So I decided to, 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 to make a break for it one evening. It was two o'clock in the morning. Went downstairs, out to the exit, climbed over the, the railing fence at the hospital and was walking around the city early hours in the morning. And I thought, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? I can't steal a bike, you know. I can't steal a car. I've got these shackles on my ankles. You know, if I get caught, I'm going to get another 25 years on top because it's a big thing to escape. I could possibly get shot. And I made that decision to go back a couple of hours later. And when I went back, no one else, again, no one had seen me or, or noticed that I'd gone. And I found myself back in my bed, just... I felt quite grateful, to be honest, that I'd made that decision back then. Yeah, because three years is bad enough, never mind getting yeah, another 25 years. And I didn't think the embassy were going to kind of support me or hide me or harbour me or take me to back to the UK and go, right, we've shaved him from... Well, see, when you're in there, how does the embassy treat you? Do you? Are you in contact with anybody? Can they send... Are you trying to get home? Are you trying to get a transfer? Have you got to finish your sentence over there? Well, the embassy used to come up, like, once a month and just provide you with stamps and writing equipment, really. Not much. They couldn't really do much. and They didn't do much. Prisoners abroad were good. They got us um, protein tablets and they used to send us 2,000 baht once a month in, which, you know, helped a lot. But I used that money to, to buy drugs, the protein tablets to swap for drugs. Um, I couldn't face reality. I couldn't face the day. I just wanted to sleep it away. Um, it, was, it was quite austere and barbaric. So anything, any mind or mood altering chemical at that time, you know, was, was, was purchased. Over, yes, it's... Yeah, it's, it's tough. It's a tough fucking. It's a tough one over there. Yeah. Did you have a lot of friends with within the vicinity who were British themselves? I didn't get on with the foreigners for some reason. Did you not? I mean, no, they kind of uh, fell out with with them all the time. Very argumentative. They were very different from me. Australians, um, Iranians, Nigerians, lots of Africans. Um, and I didn't. I didn't get on well at all with them. I mean, seeing you were in the fight camp, you were because you were in the the Muay. Yeah. Did that help you in the prison to get away from the bad stuff? Did you have better treatment? I did. What happened? What happened with the boxing? It was uh, I used to feel really envious to see them train. You know, when I was desperate, I was fucked on the drugs. You know, and, and then the drugs stopped coming because I couldn't pay for them. You know, so 
I was hungry and I, and I, and I think it was hungry in more ways than one. You know, I was hungry to kind of live as well. And I went along and I tried to join the boxing team and they refused to let me in and, and I kept coming back. And eventually they said, yeah, look, give him a chance here. And then I finally, unity and collectively as a group, I was getting supported. You know, I was getting fed better. Um, I learned to speak Thai. I started to smile a bit more. You know, I started to enjoy life in prison a lot better than I did when I was using drugs. Um, some purpose in your life. Yeah, some, fo yeah, some focus, some purpose. And it was an escape from the conditions for just a, just a few hours. You know, just that training. Because uh, you know, I trained for like three, four hours a day. Constantly, I'd be on the bags, I'd be on the pads, I'd be in the ring, I'd be running around the compound, lifting weights. And when I say weights, it was like two tins of paint with concrete in it and a brush pole. You know what I mean? <laughs> there was no, there was no real weights. It was like it wasn't like this gym we're in with red rum in the background. <laughs> you know what I mean? How was the food? The food was, oh my god, it was like um, sticky rice and uh, like a soup with chicken heads in it. No, the f oh, I was horrible. I put a spoon in one day and then um, pulled out half a chicken face with an eyeball in it. I was like, what the fuck is this? What I mean? I went to throw it away and one of the ties grabbed it off my spoon and just started sucking its head. You know, when it was just, it was just, it was, it, it stunk as well. It was horrible to, to kind of, um, it wasn't even edible. You couldn't even describe it. Did you ever get food poisoning or? I got a lot the of shits. yeah, a lot of the shits a lot, and I was poorly a number of times. I was in and out of the prison hospital. I don't think that was just due to the food, though, because in the end, you know, the, the missionaries had come up and they'd buy us bits of bread and a few cartons of milk, and you know, that'd help. Mm -hmm. Some fruits as well. Because like, obviously you've had a lot of lows in your life, but you've not let it defeat you. No, because you've you are. Working with one of the biggest actors ever in the world, um, Sylvester Stallone, yeah. you were a stunt double in Rambo. How yeah. did that come about? Again, you know, that was just quite random. I was in a gym in Chiang Mai and I seen this guy who looked familiar and I asked him, was he a boxer? He said no, he was an actor. And he, his name was Matt Marsden and he worked on the set of uh, Coronation Street in the UK. So this is, I wasn't a big Curry fan, but he, he was quite familiar in some areas. I must have seen him somewhere. And I asked him what he was doing, and he said he was, um, he was, he was filming a movie called Rambo Four in in, in Chiang Mai, Thailand. And I was dead excited for him, and you know all oh. the best. And two weeks later, a casting crew came into the gym where I was training, took our names, our numbers, a few photographs, and said to be in touch if we if they need us. Two weeks after that, I got a call and. and I thought it was one of my mates winding me up. He said, will you be Sylvester Stallone stone stands in on Rambo? I went, oh, fuck off. You're having a laugh, aren't you? It doesn't even look like him. <laughs> he said, no, you've got the shape, you've got the size, you know. His stone stand-in's got the shits with the green curries and, mm -hmm. you know, we Checking need someone. Heads. Yeah, so you're quite lucky and I was quite fortunate to get the opportunity and the money was shit, but I didn't mind going because, you know, he was my hero. I grew up watching Rocky, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I was at that era of growing up of like the Rocky movies and the Rambo movies and um, he was my hero so I was just grateful to be on set and um, you know I met him um, I spent a lot of time with him on Europe 1 he couldn't understand the word that was coming out of my mouth um, he said he needed subtitles to understand me <laughs> hey man what the fucking kind of language is this fucking talking about buddy <laughs> so uh, yeah that was um, that was a great experience I really enjoyed that you know what I mean I loved it and it was quite glamorous it was an Hollywood movie set and I was quite fortunate, really. You know what I mean? To, to have these these listers. Yeah, yeah. How was it as a person, big sly? He was quite intimidating. Was he initially? Do you think that's because you've watched, you've grown up, grown up watching him? Yeah, it, it was. He, he had that aura of like you know he, there was a presence when he was there. You knew he was there. You know, people people felt a little bit passive around him, and and, and they were, and me being me, I just. Went right up to him and I chat with him and you know when I said you're my hero and he said no man I'm a fraud you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm just a fraud and 
Because he's got some story himself. Yeah, he's brilliant to me. Yeah. All I respect, I respect his, his journey too. And he was, he's a great director. And he seemed as if he was always in character. What you see on set and in the movies is what you see in life. Mm -hmm. This is the way he was. Because he me. was near enough homeless. And I think, because he wrote the script for Rocky... Yeah. And they wanted to buy it for a hundred grand, yeah. and they knocked it back because he wanted to play the part. And I think he had to sell his dog and stuff. Yeah, I read that story. Yeah, yeah that was quite. Yeah, he sold his dog, and once he he got he made Rocky, and he he played the part. He went back to buy his dog. Yeah, and he was, I think he sold the film for a hundred dollars. I, I might butcher this story here, but I think he sold it for a like hundred dollars, and they wanted to buy it back for like ten grand. I think he got the dog back. So yeah. it was like great. He created his own opportunities. And, yeah. and that's what it's all about in life is, is creating your own opportunities and yeah. you you don't make you, you can make your situations worse or you can make them better, including yourself. You've been in a prison where you've probably one of the lowest points of your life and you've created it into a book and a yeah. film where you've got you've won awards and you've done you've done massive things. So when the book when you wrote first wrote the book, did you see it going as big as you thought? No, do you know to be to be to be honest, I was um, when I was in that prison in Thailand. I've got to say it how it is. I wanted to end my life. I remember asking this Thai guy to sell me his shoelaces, and he said I can't, because he knew what I wanted to do. And I said, why can't you do that for me? He said, because collectively, as a group, as a shell, we'll get punished. And it's you know it's one of the rules that you can't kill yourself. And I thought, how bizarre is that? Because every morning there'd be ten rules, and one of those rules was you can't commit suicide. And I thought, how fucked up is this jail? You know what I mean? You can't have sex, you can't, you can't sell drugs, you can't have weapons, you can't kill yourself. All these rules got listed off. Every single morning, I used to have to get up and stand to attention to the, the Thai National Anthem. It was like a prisoner of war camp. How fucked up is that? I was forced to stand there, 8am, every morning. And I can remember the... And we'd all have to stand there to attention while the flag went up. <laughs> I was like, fuck this, man. I'm not a fucking like prisoner of war. Yeah. yeah, it was weird. And um, so, yeah, I was at really all point lows where I wanted to end my life. And, you know, people just kept intervening. It was weird. They just kept intervening. You, you know, just be strong. You've only got a small sense since it's not that long. But a day in there was like a lifetime, you know, anywhere else. And... When I started writing, it wasn't to write a book, it was to get through the feelings that I'd, I'd experienced. It was horrible, man. It was like, I was, I was writing about uh, the pain and, and the fear and the loss and, and the loneliness and, and the separation from society. Um, and I was reading it back to myself and I was writing about a, a lot about my dad as well, growing up, you know, the contributing factors that led to, to me drug use. And when I'd read it, I remember sitting in a cell in one's way of prison and reading it and, and sobbing. Because, you know, I couldn't escape the words that were on the paper. I was, I was writing about my dad and, you know, the beatings I'd received and, and the rejection and the abandonments and, and the lack of love. Um, and it's his fault. And, you know, and I know we've got choices, but sometimes the choices that we have in life are taken away from us, especially at an early age. I grew up and, um, you know, I was free and I was carefree and, 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 and I wanted to... I wanted to join the army. I had dreams of joining the British army and, and becoming a great boxer and... You know, and he ended up becoming a drug addict and spending most of my life in prison. You know, and I, I never imagined in my wildest dreams that that's what had happened. So when I started writing this, it was um, never believed it'd even become a book. So when it did become a book and it was published first in Thailand, I was I was proud of what I'd achieved. I couldn't believe it. Um, it wasn't getting sold in the UK at that time. It was quite small. Not not many people knew about it. And then I found a publisher in the UK and it became a bestseller within six months. And then I took this book to a production company in Liverpool just to open for a documentary. Something like a little bit of exposure. Okay, I've wrote a story, I'd like the people to read it, um, get a little bit of exposure about it, maybe a documentary. And they took it off me. At first, they, they wouldn't... Uh, they wouldn't accept it. They told me to go away. I kept coming back. I said, look, you need to read this. Um, and they were hiding all the time from me. In the end, they took it. I think they felt, you know, they felt, look, we'll just do him a favour here because he's doing our editing. So they took it. So we'll be in touch. Three months later, they got in touch and had me sitting around his table with them. Saying, 
we love the book. In the, the 10 years that we've been here as a company, we've all put our hands up and said, we want this to become a movie. And I was like, a fucking movie? Are you serious? And then he started talking about A-list actors. And, you know, I think Charlie Unham was on board. He was in Sons of Anarchy. He was on board for a year. And everyone was excited. And to be honest, I'm glad he never took the role because it wasn't meant for him. You know, the young kid that... Uh, Got the role, Joe Cole, was absolutely powerful in the performance. I spent a lot of time with him. Uh, and he was keen and he was eager and he wanted this, you know what I mean? Where all the other names were just for the finances. Just accepting it, just for work for them. Yeah, it was like, oh, we'll get in because... And, and he didn't want Joe Cole, right? That's the suit. Um, and I said, why not? Me, the director, wanted Joe Cole. And he went, why not? He said, because he's not a big enough name for the finances. You know, we've got to raise capital on, on people's names. I said, well, I don't care about raising capital on a name. I just want this story to be told as authentic as possible with someone who's willing to, to, to throw it every heart. Yeah. He it, put his heart yeah, and his soul into that. And, and you know, we, we, we got him. We persevered. But to be honest, the production scene never had a name anyway. You know, so it was, it was good that we got him. So it was helping put everybody in the map. Yeah. Do you think... The book saved your life then, writing it? I think it's done a bit of both, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Kind of nearly killed me. It allowed me to talk about my past and, and my history briefly and the experiences that I'd been through. But then came, like, the ego... You know, a lot of people started showing me attention. I couldn't cope with that. That was quite difficult. You know, I was getting uh, interviewed a lot. I was on the red carpet in Cannes. You know, I was in a tuxedo. I've never even wore a suit unless it was going to court. <laughs> I'm in a tuxedo in Cannes. Um, I've got the paparazzi interviewing me um, and taking pictures. And I felt quite like... Um, it felt quite weird. It felt like it was if it was someone else's life story being portrayed on the big screen. And it wasn't really me. And I didn't feel worthy. You know, I didn't feel, feel, feel like I fitted in to society. I felt like a misfit. And I was confused why so, so many people were interested. For me, I was just like a junkie from a council estate that had been through a really tough time in life. Uh, come out the other side, motorbody. And, and all of a sudden, these people want to turn it into a, to, to, to a movie. It was quite mad, really. Um, and I was, you know, I, was, I, was, I wasn't savvy in the industry. I, I admit that I'd kind of been a bit naive and I was misled. And, you know. But you you've know. got to be proud of it. Yeah. Because yeah. It's, it's, it's your legacy that's going to be here from someone who has addiction problems, who's not had the best upbringing, to being in 22 prisons, to be in making a film and a book about you. Because we spoke earlier, there's talk of you've got something else in the pipeline for the future for yourself, a part yeah. two. Yeah, I've wrote... I wrote. I went to prison again. I came to. I seem to, 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 to write books when I go to prison, so I don't want to do a trilogy. You know what I mean? It's not going to be a part three. But yeah, this first one I wrote when I was away. The second one I wrote when I was away. And and the reason I can I can write like that is because I've got time, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I'm with myself. You know, outside there's a lot of distractions. Um, so when I wrote the second one, I call, you know, and I've titled it "Surrender from the Heart." See, people ask me why do you call a first one a prayer before dawn, and I remember thinking of a title. I wrote a synopsis, and I was thinking of a title for this new book, and I was thinking, "Welcome to Hell," and you know, we we can we can kind of dark, dead dark. You know, you know what you're gonna expect, and I remember when I was in. I see, I talk about it in the book. I was hungry, and these Muslim guys offered me a bit of food. So I sat down with them and I ate with them, and I thought to myself, "I'll come back the next day." So I went back the next day, and he said, "Really, Billy? Only the Muslim brothers eat here. These were all Malaysians and and Southern Thai." So I said, that's okay. So I put a sarong on, changed my name to Yusuf Muhammad, <laughs> and sat with them for a year. You know, I learned to speak Arabic. You know, I read the Quran. I understood. You know, we asked them questions as well because I wanted to know. Yeah. You know, what's what's all this? Uh, 
extremism going on about what's what's you know I didn't know I was only heard what I seen the news or the yeah, radio yeah seen the news the radio what I'd read in the papers what wear them off but they were quite lovely they were quite like you know so they moved me into the shell so I played five times a day with them and every morning before dawn I'd, you know I'd wake up and, and people would be praying first it'd be the Muslims with the um, chanting the, the sutras you know, every morning that I'd get that I'd read through the prison system and then it'd be you know the imam would be calling the prayer to Fajr and that was the prayer before dawn so I thought to myself, you've got Christians, Muslims, uh, Buddhists all praying at the same time. And then they open them gates to go out in the compound. It's like the, it's like it's like hell on earth. You know, and everyone's fighting just to get through the day. So it was quite ironic really. So I called it and I, I named it, I prayed before dawn, but the second one, you know, surrender from the heart is it's more of a backstory, the contributing factors that led up to. Yeah. Why is there not a why is it you not got a picture at the front? I did have one in the front. I don't know, I don't know. They should do. Put a picture of me. I think there's one in it was not even one on the back, is there? No. <laughs> yeah. I'm not pretty enough. <laughs> Never mind. Because in there in while you were in prison as well, you got a tattoo. Yeah. But the tattoo they do it took over a week and the tattoo there they used guitar strings. Rusty guitar strings with ink yeah, that painful. was smuggled in. Yeah, very painful. Very painful. And it cost me a, a sleeve of cigarettes. And I was under the influence of drugs when he asked for it to be done. Uh, I thought it was a good idea at the time. And I was into my Muay Thai boxing and I, 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 I boxed for England as a schoolboy. I was involved with the NABCs, the ABAs, the ABCs. And that was part of my life all the time, fighting. I'd always fought, you know what I mean? And I, I, I you know, fought at home with force on the streets force on the prison landings and the biggest war he ever fought was with our felt and admitting that you know I had I needed courage to ask for help so they were kind of like it was all about fighting so yeah I got a Muay boxer put on my back that tattoo guitar strings guitar strings it was quite and he fucked it up as well <laughs> you know what I mean he ran out of ink right he ran out of ink and it was um, the, the fella on the back in the tattoo, he's got a big pink hairdo, <laughs> a big bouffant, <laughs> fuming. Because <laughs> when you were in, and because in that prison as well, it's you're mixed with paedophiles, and you're not just mixed with like rapists. And you're mixed with like rapists, paedophiles. You're no, it's no like sections or protection wings. Yeah, or, there's no, there, there was no numbers or protection. It was like you were, you were, you were banged up. I was banged up with someone savoury characters, and people knew what they were in for, and no one was, you know, attacking them or. or, or verbally abusing them for the crimes that they committed and they were horrendous some of them you know raping on raping two year old babies and you know grooming kids you know what I mean it was horrible yes yeah, it's, it's bad for that over there made me feel uncomfortable to be honest yeah but another big f <laughs> you've had that many fucking fights in your life Billy but you had cancer cancer, had cancer in the yeah. neck see yeah and I'd like to talk about that briefly because I was I'd came back from Thailand, I'd rebuilt my life, I'd got a job working, you know, in the community, helping addicts in recovery. I was full-time employed, had a house by this time, a car, you know, a loving relationship. Five years down the line, and, and my dad had passed away, cancer. Sorry to hear that. Um, I was at his bedside, and I told him I loved him in the elder's hand, and it was, you know, you know, it was heartbreaking because that's he told me he loved me at the same time when he died, you know what I mean? And that's all he ever wanted from me, Dad. And I got this diagnosis pretty quick, quick, pretty, pretty, like, pretty soon after he passed away. And I was on set playing the role of my father. That's, you know, that's how I've kind of acknowledged his, his life, playing the role of my dad. And um, it was hard because... I'd been diagnosed with cancer on set, playing the role of my dad, watching this young lad, this young actor come through. And the director said to me, if you're your father, what would you say to your son? You know, and all I wanted my dad to say is, I love you. Um, and when this young kid comes towards me and I was looking at him, our eyes locked, and he knew what was going on because he'd done a character study. And it was 5am in the morning, it was in the Philippines where we were filming, and I'm just, it was like... I could. I, I was just that emotional, you know. I was that. I was welling up that much that I couldn't even 
most of the ways of love you to, to, to this young Billy, uh, this young me really, trying to connect with him. Uh, and then it ended, the movie finished, I went home, the cancer progressed. Uh, I was on chemotherapy by the stage, I had three operations, I was introduced back to opiates, production team have moved on, director's doing his editing, the actor's gone on to other job opportunities, you know, I'm left at home now, you know, I'm, I'm sick, I'm ill, um, you know, my mental health starts to deteriorate, I'm taking more and more drugs to uh, kind of avoid the feelings that I'm feeling, you know what I mean, I don't really, you know, the, the, the impending zooms in my mind and, you know, waking up thinking I'm going to die, because that's all I ever, I, I thought the cancer, cancer was, you know what I mean, you're going to die, simple as, your dad had passed away, you're going to go, you know, I had that fuckers kicked in, and any money that I'd made off the movie, which was only little amounts I'd, I'd spent, it trying to bury myself in, 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 in a narcotic kind of, kind of stupor. But thankfully you've, you're all clear. Yeah, I've and, been, thank, and, and also you're 18 months clean and sober again. Yeah. Well, Shake your hands for that, brother. Thank you. Well yeah, done. 18 months clean today. Um, you know, it was, um, you know, trying to get a morning clean was difficult, but, mm -hmm. you know, after all that, you know, you know, I went, I went back to prison, didn't I? I said that before. Um, and I went back to prison clean. I was five months in recovery. You know, and that was a new experience, spending a year in a prison in Liverpool, being an observer, uh, clean, clear-minded, watching the, um, the drug-induced paranoia on the landings, people getting slashed, people stabbing each other, people getting sexually abused with this new drug spice. You know, and I, I, I'm witnessing it, and I started. This is where the second story comes in. I started to write about what my journey from being released from Wandsworth was like up until the present day. You know, the cancer, the contributing factors that led to me relapse, um, the crime that I committed. It was a resentment with my neighbour. I went through his house and got arrested, charged, and because of my history, I got a sentence. You know, it's embarrassing, and I feel really ashamed of. The actions, because you're in the public eye now. Yeah. So anything you do is going to be yeah. blown out of proportion as well. I'm not. Um, so you're off, big man. It's nice to see you. Um, because anything you do, from being on the red carpet in Cannes, from doing movies with uh, Sylvester Stallone, and anything you do now, it's going to be a hundred times worse than what it actually is. Yeah. But you've got to kind of take that on the shoulder. You've got to kind of take that on the chin as well. But for moving on for the future for you, what's the plans and where do you see yourself now that you're clean, now that you're sober, now that you're cancer free? Do you, does that scare you as well that the cancer could come back or does it scare you that, the, listen, we could all relapse. I don't know what the fuck's around the corner. I don't know what's happening tonight. Me and you could be lying in a, a crack down yeah. <laughs> the night. Sharing a pipe <laughs> arguing over a, a sauna or something. Flight over to Thailand. <laughs> so, but the plans for the future, what's the... What do you see? There's a future bright for you. Surely it is because everything you've came through, you're, a, you're clearly a strong character. You've, just, you've beat cancer. You're, you're writing a second book. So what do you see yourself in the future this time? Do you see it positive, happy? See, my life today, right, is I live with my mum in a bungalow, sleeping on a sofa, wearing a tag, in a house with seven little dogs, all little bichons, right? Um, I, I was released from prison Christmas Eve. I had high expectations of, of doing things. Um, I felt ashamed of going to prison and, and the public flogging I'd probably received. And, and to be fair, it, it wasn't that bad. People kind of understood. Channel 4 News, fucking hell, they're horrible. Um, they're a different agenda, which upset me. Um, but I had interviews with Professor Green and, and the Independence and and Liverpool Echo, and they were quite fine, you know what I mean? They were quite understanding of um, of my demise and my journey. But yeah, you know, since I've been out, I've kind of put my focus in, in, in teaching young kids, you know, how to box. Um, I'm a chair, I'm a chairman for a knife gang, well, a knife crime campaign in Liverpool. It's called Platform for Change, near Danny's place, and it's, 
you know, it's, it's me and people in the community coming together to kind of guide young kids into a new way of living. And it's, it, that's important. I don't think, you know, I wish I had someone when I was younger to, 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 to give me that guidance and that direction. It was quite different, you know. And I don't think we had that kind of funding back then, but it's nice to, um, to have the opportunity to help someone else. You know, yeah. that altruism, being altruistic, being, being there for... It's, I'm not asked about money. I'll tell you that, James, right? I never have been. I've not got a fucking pot of pissing. I couldn't care less. I enjoy life. I enjoy living. Um, if I can put a smile on your face, <laughs> right, that rewards me. Yeah. Um, if you can pick up the phone and want to speak to me and go, Bill, do you know what? I've got a problem here. Can you can you listen to what I've got to say and, and maybe, you know, share a bit of your experience? Then that's enough. Um, I'm not muddy orientated. Never have been. I'd be nice. You know, make your misery a bit more luxurious. Yeah, but... Um, it's never, it's never been a big, big, big thing of mine. Got a little car, um, and, I, and I build on that relationship up with my mum. You know, I'm not gonna, I'll, I'll soon progress to moving off the couch uh, yeah. to the place, <laughs> you know. But I'm quite happy being here at the minute. Um, but again, it's all you, you know what needs to be done now. Yeah, you've wrote a successful book, bestseller. Yeah, you've created a film from it. So who says you can't do it again? This time you're mere on the ball because in this industry, a lot of people are out to fuck you, yeah. and you've clearly. We had a chat earlier where you're only getting a very small percentage, a very, very small percentage yeah. of the things that you're doing and it's your life. It's other people that that is rewarding and benefiting from yeah. it. Yeah. I think people always ask me the same question. There's two questions that I've always been asked later. Was that scene in the film with the ladyboy through? No, it wasn't. Uh, and how much are you getting? And you'd get more on benefits than you would today from making a movie. That's the truth, you know what I mean? Um, it's crazy, isn't it? It is. It's people think you you write a story and, and they make a movie about your life and, and you're loaded. But that's not the truth, you know what I mean? Same, same you went to prison there, the, the last stint, that was after the film, that was after everything, was it? Yeah. Were you still in contact? Did a lot of people turn their back on you? How was it for you, that experience? Because I know you just said you did it clean, so obviously you're more aware, yeah. where you're aware of your actions even more. And we, we speak about it all the time on this show that... The only... The only people who, who maintained contact was Joe Cole, the actor. You know, I'd contact him. Uh, we were we were speaking, you know, a lot on the phone whilst I was away. And he was non-judgmental. He was very supportive. He, he was understanding. And that's because he spent a lot of time with me and he knows me. And he knows with sound the clear of mind that most of the things that I did, I wouldn't do uh, in, in, in clean. So... You know, he was he was there for me and, and, and a few of the distributors and they were there, they were supportive and they helped me when I got out. You know, and the producers, they moved on, especially the ones in Liverpool. You know, I'm quite upset that the way they turned it back on me. You know, I committed a crime. You know, it's not a crime but a sense. You know, I, I, I'm not uh, proud of that fact. But I didn't get up one day and go, I'm going to do that unless you want to go to harm other people, you know what I mean? Um, and it, it's you know it saddens me today. You know what I mean? It really, really does. I feel there's no about fuck them. Yeah, we all make mistakes. We're all gonna. We don't know what's around the corner. And yeah, we we regret things that we do. But we're human. You're a man enough to accept it, and you're man enough to move on from it. So yeah, for yeah. me, anybody that's turned their back on you, fuck them. Fuck them. Do you know what I mean? You've you've been a lot more lonely positions than waiting for someone to maybe get you a letter up or try and help you out, but. Again, you've come through the mill, you've come through that much in your life to yeah. to get to where you are, to where you are now. Now you're fighting fit again. Yeah. You're doing big things, mate, So and now you're doing the knife crime things. I wouldn't, it can be disheartening. See, when you, we, after the book came out and the film came out, is that when you started dabbling again? And the drugs, did it get, did it, the attention kind of push over the edge? And no, but it was the moments I got diagnosed with uh, cancer and then a, the reintroduction back to opiates. Now, as I said at the beginning of the interview, I'm the kind of person that, you know, you know, I'm allergic to drugs. If I don't, I don't break out in lumps and bumps, I break out in pain, misery and loss. And he ends up in handcuffs. This is what happens. So when I got reintroduced back to uh, opiates, you know, the doctor would give me painkillers and tell me to take two every four hours. And then I'd start abusing them. I'd take four every four hours. Then it'd be six. And then I'd like the feelings. And then I'd be like, me, me mind would be clouded with all this kind of, these drugs and I didn't want to feel no more and you know before long I'm in the grip of addiction and I'm snowballing 
mass of the answer and my drugs become more important than my life than my family than my friends I separate myself um, so it was it was on that it was just I was in cans under the influence and you wouldn't know you wouldn't sell because I, I heard it really well from everyone we are good on iron. Addicts are the yeah, best well, that we can hide and lie. It's manipulative. I'd blame, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd blame it on the illness. I'd blame it on the cancer. You know, you look like you've lost a bit of weight. Oh, yeah, well, you know why. And, you know, and to be honest, right, James, I was, I get like really like nervous when it comes to interviews. And, and, and I remember getting interviewed, well, being interviewed by a few people, and it becomes scripted. And I was saying that to you before. Yeah, I don't yeah, really yeah. want to sound like. Someone who's reading off a, a yeah, script, talking the same know. stuff. You know, I enjoy um, I enjoy my life. You know, we've only got a few short decades here. You know, I want to do something good with it. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to enjoy it. You know what I mean? I want to, um, I, I want other people to enjoy theirs. Um, if I can help you, yeah. If you're willing to meet me halfway, then fine. Uh, if you want to help me, then you know, and I'll meet you halfway. Then that's that's good. You know, I haven't got a, I haven't got a. I haven't got a publisher for this new book. You know, I've, I've been hurt and I'm misled and, you know, loads of trust issues over the, the last... Um, three, four years. Three or four years. You probably had trust issues all your life, but then yeah. when you start seeing people being sleeker and, yeah. and fucking your left, right and centre again, then your trust issues are going to come back. So for anybody watching, because we get a, a lot of people watching and listening, because we want to get your second book published. Yeah. We won't even get it made into a second film. So for anybody watching or listening... Get involved. How can people get in contact with you, Billy? Uh, you can contact me via Twitter or, you know, I've got an email. It's billymore35 at yahoo.co.uk. Mm -hmm. uh, Facebook, <laughs> all the social media Everything. sites. Yes, definitely get involved. I'm quite, I'm quite, I'm quite, I've got Instagram, I'm quite open. You know what I mean? To get anybody to get involved in. I get your, again, that's a, your story going through the cancer. The other story, I've been back in prison, it's... As a, you have got a story to tell and people are interested in even though it can be against your misery which is tough do you know what it's mad isn't it because I don't think I've got like a story to tell I think I'm just another and when I hear it I cringe really I think embarrassed yeah I get embarrassed um, I even get embarrassed about telling people I've written one you know what I mean yeah of course but you've still got to value your worth because when we do good things we spoke about it earlier we feel as if we don't deserve it yeah, why are we doing this we, we don't be deserving to be standing on a red carpet we don't deserve to be making a film with the good actors and, and and that's just because we've been told we're not good enough for yeah. such a young age we feel as if but yeah. again fuck everybody else we've all got a past we all make mistakes but anybody can change I don't give a fuck who you are so for, for anybody we get a lot of people who's got addiction problems and who watch this show as well for anybody in the struggle what advice would you give them right now because you're 18 months clean again you're back on the path you're you're thinking straight, you're wanting to do good things. So what kind of advice would you give for someone who's in a struggle? I'd just say, look, if you're going to struggle, struggle with a smile and, uh, you know, take each day as it comes and it's stay vigilant. Uh, don't take life too seriously, but take your recovery, make sure your recovery is important. It's like, I, I go to meetings and I, I, I hear people talk about recovery and I hear people talk about clean time and, and after the time, it's, it's self-talk, that negative talk. I feel shit today, oh, this, that, and the other. And I think, do you know what? The more you sell yourself that, the more you're going to believe it, the more you're going to condition yourself when you start telling yourself, it's okay, you know, you're alive, you've got food in the cupboards, you've got a roof over your head. Some people mightn't have that, but you've got people in your life who will support you and who are willing to help you. And, and that's what it's about, it's about turning up. You know, I've got a head full of cartoons. My head is like, <laughs> it, 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 I get obsessed. I, 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 and then composed to do things. Um, at the minute, I'm, I'm on a mad kind of, training regime where I want to drop a few pounds because I feel fat and people say you look great but to me I don't I, 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 I fucking I think oh you look overweight and you know yeah, and you need to be fit and I forget that I'm 46 you know and I can go rounds with MMA fighters and you know and I can do an hour non-stop on an Eamon and, and shake it so I can get in the ring and spar and but in here we're still 16 and 18 yeah yeah I'm still a kid I'm still, yeah, young, I'm still, still young man but again I said to you earlier you have lost a lot of weight yeah. you're clearly on the path you're clearly doing well again and it's great to see you mate because you're a, a fucking diamond you're a good guy Billy. Thank you. I wish you all the best for the future the girl from 
exercise for less because we're in this gym and we'll give her a shout out. Kaylee. Kaylee, she's hiding now. Yeah, she's um, hiding. For using her gym. Yeah, and thanks, yeah, thanks to Kaylee. How can we get how can people get involved in your book, Prayer Before Dawn? You can get that on Amazon. Amazon. Yeah, I think it's that. there's a few I mean you've only got to Google a prayer yeah, before yeah, yeah. it'll come up, you know, and you can Amazon. watch it on YouTube. Also, you can pay for it on YouTube, and we're also Sky on Demand, yeah, iTunes, and Google, yeah, and we're trying to get it on Netflix. There's also um, I had there's also on the DVD there's an interview or a documentary with me, Professor Green, but you can only watch that if you buy the DVD. You see it on it's uh-huh. not on YouTube, that it's mad, um, which is quite interesting. Uh-huh. You know what I mean, but for anybody get involved, anybody can help Billy out with his new book or documentaries or whatever, because he's got some stories. A great guy. Again, if you want to promote or anything, you're anything is that it yeah that's it that's brilliant thank you very much James listen for coming on today and telling your story I appreciate that brother great guy thank you Sports Social Podcast Network